Welcome to BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast. We're joined by judges and legal professionals to discuss emerging trends, regulatory updates, and the latest headlines. We'll provide tips to help your law firms and legal departments make the most out of legal tech. Hi, everyone. I'm Jared Crafton, BDO's Forensic Technology Practice Leader. And I'm Daniel Gold, BDO's Managing Director of the Enterprise eDiscovery Managed Services Practice. Let's get started with this episode's exciting topic. Welcome to another episode of BDO's Legal Tech Talk. We are so excited to be joined virtually in the podcast studio, the Honorable Tanya R. Kennedy. Thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Dan. Happy New Year. Thank you, and Happy New Year to you as well. Now, for those who are in the e-discovery world and the legal professional world that don't know the Honorable Tanya R. Kennedy, I, I, I'm going to do the honors, Your Honor, of giving a little bit of background as to who you are, what you do, and then obviously I'd love for you to expand upon that as well. So, Justice Kennedy, you were appointed in July of 2020 by Governor Andrew Cuomo as an Associate Justice of the Appellate Division, First Department of the New York State Supreme Court. And prior to that appointment, you had served as a Justice of the Supreme Court in New York County, starting in January of 2016, after your uh, election in November 2015. You were elected to civil court in November 2005, and thereafter served in criminal court, civil court, family court, acting Supreme Court justice, and, if that wasn't enough, supervising judge of the civil court in New York County. You're also a former adjunct professor at Fordham University School of Law, where you taught juvenile justice seminar for 10 years. And one of the interesting things that I really want to dive into, and really the theme of our show here today, is some of the other areas, Justice Kennedy, that you have been involved in. For instance, you are co-chair of the newly formed Wellness Committee of the Appellate Division, First Department. You are a life member of the Metropolitan Black Bar Association, former board member of the association. You're a member of the board directors of the New York City Bar Association. By the way, I don't think you do enough, Justice Kennedy. Also, um, executive committee member of the Women in Law section of the New York State Bar Association. And one of the things that's also interesting as well, there's many, many mother accolades that you've gotten. But one of the things that I wanted to derive from this, one of the things that this theme of, of obviously our program today here, is really honing in on the activities and involvement that you've had and the legal profession, and that is diversity, equity, inclusion, or DEI. And uh, anyway, Justice Kennedy, did I do a good job summarizing, for the most part, your bio there? Job well done, counsel. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, it's interesting because talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion is, is something that is not often talked about in the legal profession. Right. And, and, and it hasn't been. And, and now all of a sudden, as of late, it appears as if this is becoming more of like a hot topic thing, right? It's being more and more that it's being included in, you know, tabletop conversations, I'll say. And I'm hoping maybe we could start this off by, you know, I'll, I'll throw a softball question over to you, Justice Kennedy, which is really just defining what does it mean, in your words, right. to have a diversity, equity, and inclusion program in the workplace? Right. I like to take a step back, if I, if I may, Dan, because 
when we're talking about diversity, to me, diversity, it's reality, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, groups of various races, ethnicity, gender, gender identity, gender expression, as well as physical disabilities. But then again, diversity can also include persons from different income and social backgrounds, as well as from geographical locations and professional experiences. Now, when we move to equity and inclusion, that's a choice. That requires intentionality. So how would I view inclusion? That's when we take actions to to recognize, appreciate, value, respect, and understand the differences of those in the aforementioned groups and to leverage those differences to enhance the particular workplace or organization and include them into the particular framework and provide equal access for growth and opportunity. And really it's about creating a climate of belonging. And so when we talk about equity, obviously we want to make sure that the processes and the programs are fair, they're impartial, providing equal outcomes for every individual. And certainly, when we do this, what happens? More trust, more commitment, better retention, and we can talk more about those things. But that's what these three things mean to me. I love the word that you used, and it's this intentionality, right? That's it. That's it. Um, and, 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 and that choice to make a difference. And, and it's interesting, Jared, when other shows that we have had other guests on, you know, we talk, it's interesting how this theme has come up about just being more human, right, in the legal profession. And, and even when we're talking about how it all ties together with legal technology. When I was thinking about you coming onto the program and I was talking with Jared about how we would talk about this topic, you know, we did our research and we found something really interesting. Mm -hmm. And it may just because Google wasn't that popular back in 2000 and that's fine, right? Mm -hmm. But when you run a Google search for the legal profession with diversity, equity, inclusion, all in the same search over the last 23 years, there's something fascinating that pops up. Between 2000 and 2005, there was less than 50,000 hits that you could find, right? So legal profession, diversity, equity, inclusion. Then 2005 to 2010, the next five years, you've got less than 100,000. Next five years, you've got almost 300,000. But here's what's most fascinating, and I love your take on this. Mm -hmm. From 2015 to the end of 2022, Mm -hmm. 113 million hits, legal profession, diversity, equity, inclusion. Like, are we, I, I'm going to use a, a word that my kids use, right? Are we more woke? Are we finally becoming like the humans that we should be? Or or what do you think is happening, Justice Kennedy? You know, first, 
I should also say hello and happy new year to Jared. I said that <laughs> before the recording, but he's here too. So let me it's say true. that. It's true. You did. Him. Thank you very much. <laughs> happy new year to you as well. So, you know, I really want to put the, the bullet point at 2020, if I may, because I think that 2020 changed everything. The reason why I say that is because you had the COVID pandemic. Unfortunately, we are still living in the pandemic. But when we were really locked down, unfortunately, we, meaning not just here in New York, but the entire nation, the entire globe, witnessed the murder of George Floyd. And to me, that really changed everything. And so when you look at the intersection between COVID-19, that really shined a light on the systemic inequities in the healthcare system and the lack of access to vital resources. also including technology, and I know that we'll get into that. But when you couple those things together, I think it created a, an awakening throughout the globe. You had several persons, not just within the legal community, but throughout, wanting to become more involved with civic engagement. I particularly like the young people, you know, the, the Gen Zs, the millennials. They really got involved. So did lawyers. Lawyers and judges, the leaders of the justice system. So I think it really began there. Certainly Zoom, Microsoft Teams, this helped, right? Because when we were doing virtual meetings, we got to see people's homes. Sometimes you heard children in the background. They ran across the, the screen, dogs barking. So it, it made us more accessible, more human, flexibility. So, Dan, I think you got to put the point at 2020. But even before that, I would say like maybe 2018, 2019, and I just think it was just a change in society. You had more discussions about corporations holding law firms accountable, the idea of metrics. Certainly, we can even broaden the scope, and I give credit to the federal judiciary they were the leaders when we talk about creating these standing rules, right? As far as giving women, younger attorneys, opportunities to speak in court. Certainly, when I was a trial judge, part of my rules, I encouraged that other judges. So I think that it started. 2017 and onward, but 2020 was the linchpin. It was the linchpin because bottom line is 
we can never go back to the way things were. And, you know, I certainly appreciated that, you know, persons in the white community recognized the importance of allyship. And I know I've been the, the beneficiary of that. And the bottom line is that for me, that's really where it starts. We have so much more work to do. And I, I commend you, Dan and, and Jared, for even having me on and discussing this because hard conversations must take place. But there's a way to do it with compassion, humility, and understanding. Listening is key. Transitioning to legal technology, you know, what is the importance from your perspective and the ethical implications of attorneys not understanding legal technology? You know, I'm going to make a little joke. You know, judges are not supposed to be biased, right? However, I am with one, two things. One is about my high school. We can talk about that offline. But uh, New York is the best place to live, New York. I know Dan, Dan is laughing, but there are a lot of close seconds, like Chicago and Boston, a lot of close seconds. Not Kansas. Thank Justice. you for my hometown. And just so you know, we didn't Maybe talk about this. I did live in Maybe New York. In <laughs> I, I did live in New York for 10 years, and I do agree with you. But the thing is, I think it's so wonderful, right, that New York is the first state that beginning in July of this year is going to require attorneys to take at least one cybersecurity credit, you know, cybersecurity, privacy, data protection. And obviously, I'm sure more will come of this. We have to take at least one credit every two years. But the bottom line is that attorneys, you know, have ethical obligations, right? The key thing is rule 1.1, competent, right? That common eight to maintain the requisite knowledge and skill. A lawyer should keep abreast of changes in the law and its practice, including the benefits and risks associated with relevant technology and engage in continuing study and education and comply with all the continuing legal education requirements to which the lawyer is subject. The bottom line is there are new platforms each and every day, right? The law cannot keep up with it. However, are we supposed to be experts? No, but to have some type of understanding because this is where the problem comes in. You know, certainly there have been a number of, of cases, you know, talked about them at Relativity Fest, about sanctions being imposed. Why? Because data hasn't been preserved right? Other areas where there's inadvertent disclosure. And 
it's obvious because even in some of the cases, they talk about the lawyers not understanding the platform. So I think that's the key thing. You have to understand the platform. And if I may, I'm going to give you an example, right? Because here in New York, you know, the, the commercial division that deals with complex commercial cases, it's a rule, you know, with respect to the preliminary conference that, you know, counsel, they should be sufficiently versed in matters relating to their clients' technological systems to discuss competently all areas relating to electronic discovery. And certainly, uh, attorneys are permitted to bring a client representative or outside expert to assist in those discussions. It sounds to me like New York is far ahead of some other states because the, you know, the requirement for the CLE credit, for instance, to understand the technology. I'll resist the urge, Justice, to ask you a compound question. So I'll break my question apart. I, I don't want to get overruled in my question here. So uh, the first question I have for you is, is about that is, so do you think that there is 10 years later, there's hope that maybe New York might be, even be setting the standard for other states across the country? to have us be a little bit better as lawyers as it relates to legal technology. Dan, see, this is where my bias comes in and I'm admitting <laughs> it. <laughs> right, fair enough, fair enough. Well, you are because, human, right? <laughs> yeah, we have established I'm, that. I'm, I'm, yes. I'm human, but at least I admit it. You know, listen, <laughs> you know, listen the, the bottom line is that these things are happening because not enough attorneys are taking advantage of the resources that are out there to learn. We are now in a situation where there are hybrid workplaces. Some people work, what, two or three times a week from home? So there are certain challenges there. You know, are you safeguarding your network? Do you have things in place? Right. And I think it's a start. And to me, Dan, I think that, yes, New York is setting this, the standard, the gold standard, at least having it. Do you have hope that we are actually just maybe there's a, a glimmering of hope that we're getting better? And maybe it was, as you said before, maybe it's it's the pandemic changed everything and we're a little bit more savvy than we were before because we were forced into it. You know, I'm going to answer it this way, Dan. I really don't think that we have a choice because technology really is here to stay. And as I indicated before about the new platforms being created each and every day, now, you know, more sophisticated platforms. So I don't think we really have a choice, Dan in this, if attorneys are going to really provide a true representation, okay, this is an area that must be addressed. 
as it relates to being comfortable, being familiar with technology. And I know that there is some pushback, you know, to say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not tech savvy. I don't think that that's not what we're talking about, but, but to have basic knowledge. GPT, uh, I think it was a great article. Open chat GPT. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of fun if you it. haven't played with it yet. I, I have not. I have enough on my plate, Jared. Listen, I'm constantly reading. Okay. <laughs> it's supposed to take so, things off your plate, though, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, not that. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, you know, when, when we talk about, for example, ephemeral data, right? How are you going to preserve that, safeguard it? And I think that's what's going to be really key going forward about safeguarding material, data protection. And, you know, this may be dicey, but then do you really want to use certain platforms? That's a business decision (laughs) that I think you know, could be discussed with counsel, whether there's another type of mechanism for you to communicate. Or if you are, you have to understand how you're going to safeguard it. Is there a stigma around ephemeral messaging or at least a very healthy level of skepticism from the bench when you come across it? I'm not going to say that, but I know that there are issues concerning that. And I think that attorneys, you know, have to tread very lightly. I'll put it as, as that way. Only because I'm an appellate judge, I really want to be careful <laughs> how I phrase certain things, Jared, if that if that makes sense. I don't want to give like an advisory opinion. Yeah, no, certainly. <laughs> certainly not looking for that either. But I will say this, and you know, this goes back to the knowledge, right? About if you're going to use something, you got to know the the benefits and the risks. And and I think that this is where counsel or the law firm they, they get involved as far as certain business decisions about how things should be monitored and used. Is there an argument to be made, Justice Kennedy, that You've got lawyers, and and I've heard this when I've done CLEs across the country, right? And what I've heard lawyers say to me, you know, I talk about this ethical obligation a lot, right? I don't know why, but I talk about it ad nauseum. My hope is that through education, we all become better versions of ourselves as lawyers, right? Uh I truly truly believe that. Um, I do too. So, uh, kindred spirits. So, um, (laughs) So, I'm wondering, you know, some lawyers have said to me, Daniel, you know, it's the reason why, you know, we hire folks like you. You tell us what to know, but does that really release them of the obligation, especially you know, from your perspective on the bench, right? I mean, I look to Rule 5.3b of the of the Model Rules of Professional Responsibility, and it says lawyers have an ethical obligation to oversee non-lawyers. Now, though Absolutely. I might I may be barred in the state of New Jersey, tech, technical, I'm actually retired in the state of New Jersey, but even though I'm non-practicing in terms of my role here at BDO, right? And so as such... I am a non-lawyer to a lawyer that is our client. So can they rest on their laurels to say, 
I handed it off to Daniel and Jared. Go. Is that enough? Not at all. Not at all. So, you know, listen, it's about not only supervising the attorneys who are under you, but, you know, the vendors, any third parties, you have to do your due diligence. You have to make sure that they have the appropriate wherewithal, number one, to perform the services and to oversee that. So this is constant. It's not just for the attorney personally, but their staff, legal, non-legal, the tech staff, all of the above. Go back to DEI for a second, Justice Kennedy. And certainly, you know, I feel like there's a lot of improvement that can be made, at least in, you know, starting with community engagement, you know, around STEM. Uh, and we certainly, you know, we see more of that. Uh, but I don't know that from my perspective, I've seen, you know, a similar focus, um, again, in the legal profession, but in the slice that I am a part of, you know, with a very technical background, a non-law school background. Since you brought STEM, I mean, I do have a few statistics, you know, from the, the Pew report, you know, women make up a quarter or, or fewer of workers in computing and engineering, right? Certainly women are overrepresented in the health-related jobs. Hispanic workers make up about 8% of STEM workers. Black workers make up about 9% of STEM workers. Unfortunately, with no change since 2016. But there are mentorship groups and other groups aimed at amplifying uh, diversity and inclusion efforts, you know, within the e-discovery field. One is, you know, women in e-discovery. You know, another one, and I know you know about that, the Electronic Discovery uh, Institute. So things are being done. The interesting thing that you were mentioning before is on this is is going back to something you said at the, at the start of the program, and that is, you know, this is really a choice. And what's notable in my research, and Justice Kennedy is what I'm looking for your feedback on, is that it seems like more and more organizations are recognizing that by leveraging that choice and including more diversity into the workplace, it actually does create a better workplace environment. Are you starting to see promise from your perspective? Because you are so involved in, in these areas. Are you starting to see that there's light, so to speak? I mean, the pandemic was such a dark period for the world, but something that I'm hearing you say is that there is amplification now of this. Right. There was a lot of darkness, but out of this darkness, we're starting to see light. And do you see that as well in the legal profession? An example is this podcast, what we're doing. Think about it. Would this podcast have taken place? I don't know. Seven, eight years ago? I don't know. You, you have to answer that. Right. But to me, what we're doing is positive. That, that shows light. And as I said, Many of the bar associations, uh, judicial associations, they are addressing this. When you read the various legal periodicals and blogs, they are discussing this. As I said before, conversations about metrics, and that's key 
because the bottom line is the numbers don't lie, right? Numbers don't lie. So with the numbers, that's when people can put their money where their mouth is. You can see, okay, let's measure, you know, who's getting the promotions, who's getting the assignments, you know, how are we moving so-and-so up the ladder? Those are metrics that can be measured. And then if you see an issue where there's an area of improvement, you can tweak it. And then the metrics, you know, can address it accordingly. So to me, I think that's where the focus should be as well. Creating these metrics to measure success as well as areas for improvement. Because Dan, you know, as you said, you know, listen, don't take my word for it. I mean, there are studies, right? Increased profitability, a more productive workplace, certainly greater retention rates, certainly better results. You know, you have innovative thinking, increased critical thinking. Certainly, there's, a, there's an increase with clientele. Because now you have more exposure. And the bottom line is that you're being introduced to new audiences that you wouldn't have the benefit of knowing before. So it's all of these things. So interesting. If you think about everything you said just now, greater retention, productivity, better results, innovative and critical thinking, increased clientele, all of that leads to the very first thing you said, which is increased profitability, right? So it's amazing just by choosing to be a better human is really what this comes down to, right? We choose to be a better human. It choose to it makes a better place for us at work. And when we're, we're more comfortable at work, better results happen, increased profitability, et cetera. Yeah. This whole thing, to me, it all boils down with competence, right? Just knowing because that's where it all starts. Right. But then when we talked about the supervision, who are going to be the appropriate custodians, right? You know, of the ESI. And how are you going to make sure that those persons are, are competent? Right. Because, you know, when we talk about, and I'm 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 going back and forth, right, with the sanctions, with the ethical obligations, right? Because a lot of times when we talk about the sanctions, right, was the person really even competent, right, to even conduct the proper search for the records, right? You're laughing, but it's true, right? <laughs> or like what's the policy, you know, when you're talking about all of these different platforms and then do you have the proper safeguards in place? So I think that's where the focus has to be. You know, the more and more we rely on technology, listen, technology is our friend, right? I believe that it can really enhance access to justice. You know, another conversation on the podcast is this digital divide and how do you close that? But that's for another podcast. But right now it's about how 
to make attorneys understand legal technology so you can avoid the inadvertent or unauthorized disclosure. You can avoid destruction of records. I mean, that's really what it is. And then also security issues, you know, just to make sure that you have the proper safeguards. I mean, when I came to the court in 2020, I had to upgrade my equipment here in my apartment, you know? And certainly I do have a court-issued laptop and I just use it for court-issued business. Justice Kennedy, I think I speak for Jared when I say we could probably talk to you all day. But I, I'll tell you, this has been our honor, your honor, to to talk with you uh, on this show. I, I think that if I were to, if our listeners were to walk away from anything from this program today, I think that some of the so the light that we we talked about really is tied to education. And I think that if all of our listeners amplify the importance of education around legal tech to avoid some of those issues with sanctions, what have you, go back and maybe reread rule 1.1, 1.6, 5.3, et cetera, right? But also amplify the messaging around the importance of DEI in the legal profession, right? Because I think that there is, from what this conversation has taught me, is that there is a, a definite correlation also between legal technology, the availability, as well as becoming better humans, as well as DEI. And maybe that's the biggest takeaway we got from this, Justice Kennedy, right, is the importance of being not just better lawyers, but how do we become better humans, right? And I think that maybe perhaps that was part of this. You mentioned something interesting I'll close with here. You said that we need to all be better listeners. It reminds me of the stoic Epictetus who said, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason, so we can listen twice as much as we speak. In any event, that is all to say, Justice Kenny, thank you so much for being the better part of our day here today and being on the program. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast. If you're enjoying these podcasts, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe for more episodes. Head over to BDO.com for a list of all our episodes, transcripts, resources cited, and links on how to get in touch with us and continue the conversation. Until next time, this has been another episode of BDO's Legal Tech Talk.